Good afternoon. Welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute. My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and I'll be your moderator for today's policy forum titled Relief from Gridlock, Surface Transportation Reauthorization in 2009. We thought that was a real attention-grabbing title for our forum, so I'm sure that you're all excited to hear the conversation that follows. What's interesting to me is that transportation policy is an opportunity for virtually every imaginable interest group, whether they're related to transportation policy or not, to weigh in and use the policy discussion that follows to advance different agendas. I heard on NPR on Friday, for instance, a commentary from Robert Reich, on uh, the show Marketplace, which discussed the upcoming reauthorization of, uh, tra- of transportation law and expenditure, in which he argued that the key to the economy's stagnant uh, prospects was to, uh, was to repair to uh, Keynesian macroeconomics and to provide a stimulus via road construction, bid, build, uh, uh, bridge maintenance, and that sort of thing, which is sort of a classic way of looking at transportation policy, a way of trying to get the economy running. Of course, Japan tried that in the early 1990s without very good effect, but that hasn't deterred Mr. Rice from endorsing that policy uh, as a rerun in the United States. Of course, environmentalists have their own agenda with regards to transportation policy because energy use is quite important to them. Uh, The uh, trucking industry and other other industries relying upon transportation, of course, have their own preferences. And then economists have their own, which tends to think about efficiency and uh, that sort of thing, which oftentimes isn't on the political radar screen. Uh, And, of course, politicians who we try to talk to about such issues look at transportation policies and ideal way of bringing pork back to their districts through earmarks and that sort of thing, uh, since there seems to be a very strong correlation between bringing transportation dollars home and getting votes in November. Uh, So transportation policy is an endlessly interesting uh, arena for conversation, and we hope our policy forum today uh, 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 provides an interesting and useful look at the policy issues that are actually in play. Um, I'm going to introduce each speaker in turn, uh, as opposed to one after another. Otherwise, I'll be here for 20 minutes. So our first speaker this uh, afternoon will be Randall O'Toole. Uh, He'll be followed by Sam Staley and Greg Cohen. Uh, Randall O'Toole, uh, I've known Randall for probably about 20 years since I've been at the Cato Institute. Randall has been a mainstay in public policy work and who's somebody I've greatly admired over the years, and recently uh, his arrival here at the Cato Institute has been very good news for us. Uh, Randall is a senior fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. His research is uh, on national, national forest management, culminated in his 1988 book, Reforming the Forest Service, which got my attention as a young analyst here at Cato, and he has had a major influence on forest service policy and on-the-ground management. His analysis of urban land use and transportation issues is of more topical interest for today's conversation, and that was brought together in a 2001 book titled The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, which has influenced decisions in cities across the country. In his most recent book, The Best Laid Plans, O'Toole calls for repealing federal, state, and local planning laws and proposes reforms that can help solve social and environmental problems without heavy-handed governmental regulations. Are such things possible? I'm amazed to discover they might be. Um, O'Toole is an author of numerous Cato papers. Since he's come to Cato, he has made all of us look fairly inadequate. Uh, He publishes on a virtually monthly basis. I'm amazed the man sleeps, but uh, he is quite prolific. He's written in Regulation Magazine as well as op-eds and articles for numerous uh, national policy journals and newspapers. He has a daily blog called The Anti-Planner, and uh, for those... those of you who don't get Cato Clips, I can tell you we get reports on our media coverage on a daily basis, and Randall O'Toole is quite a controversial fellow from what I can tell. 
He travels extensively and has spoken about free market environmental issues in dozens of cities. An Oregon native, O'Toole has edu- has, was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and economics, more importantly for our purposes, at the University of Oregon. Please join me in welcoming Randall O'Toole. Well, thank you, Jerry, for covering just about everything I was going to say, so now I don't really have to say much. Transportation reauthorization is a big opportunity for a lot of groups to uh, get in on the pork and on the discussion. Uh, Congressman Oberstar has said that reauthorization might take place next year, but I looked it up, and the existing bill doesn't actually expire until September 2011. So I kind of suspect that uh, members of Congress will drag it out as long as they can so they can get, continue to get campaign contributions from all the people vying for all the different alternatives. But I look back to uh, 1970 when the skies in American cities were so dirty that I couldn't see Mount Hood from my hometown of Portland, Oregon, when it, uh, on a sunny day, on the rare day that it was sunny in Portland. And at that time, most of the air pollution came from automobiles. And there were two schools of thought on how to deal with transportation-related air pollution. One was to apply technological solutions, uh, control the amount of pollution coming out of tailpipes by installing catalytic converters into cars, uh, speed up the traffic because cars pollute less when they're going at, at fast, steady speeds as opposed to when they're going at slow speeds, so apply uh, traffic signal coordination to speed up the traffic or uh, build new highways and lately build new uh, tollways. Uh, with electronic tolls, cars don't have to slow down for the tolls, and if you use variable price tolls, then you won't get any congestion at all. So all of these things will help reduce air pollution. The other school of thought for reducing air pollution was what I call behavioral tools, Uh, apply urban growth boundaries to develop more compact cities so that people will live closer together and won't have to drive as far, build rail transit, build bike paths, and put in high-density developments next to the rail transit lines. You'll have lots of people riding those rail transit systems. Another name for behavioral tools is social engineering. But, of course, that's not a name I would use because that's a pejorative term, and I'm trying to take an objective look at this, so don't Pretend you didn't see that slide. Well, it it turns out that uh, the technical tools have been uh, amazingly successful. Uh, Just look at this chart, which shows that today we drive almost three times as many miles as we drove in 1970, and yet the total amount of carbon monoxide has declined by almost two-thirds, carbon monoxide coming from automobiles. Essentially, carbon monoxide is no longer an air pollution problem. Uh, as it relates to transportation. And it's not just carbon monoxide, it's nitrogen oxides, hydrocarbons, also known as volatile or organic compounds, particulates, and lead essentially has been completely removed from uh, transportation uh, pollution. So all of these things are down, even as we uh, drive more. Uh, Highways are also safer. We've solved lots of other problems with technological solutions. Uh, Fatality rates are down. Fatality numbers have declined since 1970 by about a quarter. And since we're driving so much more, uh, the fatality rates are way down. The safest place to be in a city is an urban freeway. It's far safer than just about anywhere else in a city because uh, accident rates are so low. Meanwhile, the behavioral solutions have failed miserably. There's almost no city in America that has convinced a significant number of people to leave their cars and ride transit. 
uh, even commuting. Uh, commuting peaked in 1980 in many cities because gas prices were high, uh, and cities had spent the previous decade improving bus service, and those buses were capable of dealing with uh, uh, people who were driving less because the gas prices are so high. Since then, cities like Portland and Denver and San Diego and San Jose have invested billions of dollars building rail transit. Rail transit is not very flexible, so when gas prices go up, they don't have any way of meeting the new demand, and so we're not seeing transit ridership significantly increase in those cities. You see numbers, uh, uh, occasionally you see numbers saying, oh, ridership is going up, but you look at the individual cities, they aren't going up in those cities because they don't have the capacity because rail transit is so fixed. And in fact, we actually, in terms of transit share, uh, it's declining. And it's not just in the United States. People often point to Europe, but it turns out that in Europe, uh, they've spent bill hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, roughly $100 billion a year, supporting rail transit and intercity rail, and yet uh, transit there is declining, it's losing share, intercity rail is losing share, and when we look at the totals, we see we greedy um, auto-driving Americans drive for 85% of our, all of our travel, and those green Europeans drive for 79% of their travel. It's not that big of a difference. Now, these things were pointed out in 1979 in an article in the Atlantic Monthly by the late Professor Charles Lave, an economist from UC Irvine. He said, uh, if you want to save energy, don't invest in transit. Work on the kind of the thing that people use the most. People drive more than they take transit, so make cars more efficient. That will save energy. Uh, spending a lot of money on transit isn't going to get people out of their cars, and it's not going to save energy. Well, it turns out no, uh, Congress ignored his advice. In 1990, Congress passed the Clean Air Act amendments, and in 1991, they passed the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act, or ICE-T, and these laws together encouraged behavioral tools and discouraged technical tools, uh, technical solutions that would actually reduce congestion. Employee commute options were mandated. That was a, 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 a system that was known to fail, a system that was known to not work, and yet it was mandated in many cities and is still mandated today. Flexible funds and new starts encouraged cities to divert money from highways and spend it on, uh, on roads instead. And then cities that needed to build new roads to relieve congestion and relieve air pollution, uh, many cities were not allowed to, or they were discouraged from building new highway capacity uh, because that would supposedly induce more people to drive. Uh, in fact, the latest research has all shown that there's no such thing as an induced demand, or it's greatly exaggerated. Even Robert Severo, a planner from UC Berkeley who is classed among the new urban thinkers or the smart growth thinkers who supports transit and supports transit-oriented development, he admits that the induced demand idea is pretty much a myth. Now, <clears throat> you may have picked up on your way in my paper that was released by Cato today looking at the nation's 75 largest or regional transportation plans for the nation's 75 largest urban areas. And I found that a third of those plans, 25 of them, relied primarily on behavioral tools rather than technical solutions. Some of these plans actually said things like uh, any, anything that would actually relieve congestion is inappropriate. Uh, and uh, congestion is our friend. We want more congestion because it will lead people to ride transit and things like that. Uh, so that they're 
focused exclusively on behavioral tools. Another 20% of the plans uh, relied on behavioral tools, but it was not exclusive. They also would be used technical tools. So that meant less than half of the plans relied primarily on technical tools to relieve congestion, to reduce air pollution, and to reduce the other impacts of driving. Now this is a slide from the uh, San Francisco Bay Area's Metropolitan Transportation Commission, and it shows that the cost of removing a ton of CO2 emissions from improving freeway operations was only 1% or less than 1% of the cost of removing CO2 emissions by using rail transit. And it was 10% of the cost through, of bus transit. And yet, this plan, the plan that came out from this uh, agency, focused almost exclusively on building more rail transit. It spent 80% of the transportation dollars on transit rather than on highways. And uh, uh, they, another slide in, the, in their same slideshow said, we can change people's behavior. Our whole goal is to change behavior. We haven't been able to do it. We've been trying to do it for 30 years. It's never worked, but we are going to maintain a positive attitude and still focus on doing that, on trying to do that. Now, that to me is a, is a waste of money. It's a waste of time, and it, and it wastes people's resources. Unfortunately, today, uh, environmentalists have a new reason for changing people's behavior, global warming. When we look at the numbers, and I did this in a policy analysis that uh, Cato published a few weeks, ago, a few couple of months ago, and it's available uh, outside if you didn't pick one up. Uh, it's also available online. Uh, when we look at the numbers, we find that rail transit is not a good way of trying to relieve greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it turns out most light rail lines in this country uh, use as much energy or more energy than an average SUV. And uh, most of them use as much or emit or as much or more CO2 as an average automobile. And even, even though some light rail lines tend to be efficient, they're all supported by feeder buses. And these feeder buses are burned diesel. They emit lots of CO2. And they tend to run empty because it turns out instead of taking the feeder buses, most people drive to the park and ride stations. Construction also emits lots of CO2. And when we just look at cons the construction emissions of CO2, even if it does save energy, some of the environmental impact statements for light rail lines say it'll take as much as 170 years or more of energy save or of CO2 savings to uh, uh, make up for the construction cost. Well, by 170 years from now, they're going to have to reconstruct the rail line three or four or five times anyway, so uh, that will emit lots more CO2. So effectively, you'll never save CO2 with light rail or other rail transit. Uh, when we count rail and buses together, uh, many cities that have built rail and then run feeder buses to the rail lines end up emitting more CO2 per passenger than they did before that when they just had buses. This is Houston, but I could show you a similar chart for uh, 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 Salt Lake City, Denver, and many other cities. Now, Washington's metro system, that's a heavy rail system, subway system. Uh, that's pretty energy efficient, but guess what? Most of the energy here comes from burning fossil fuels. So the Washington's metro system actually emits more CO2, about 20% more CO2 per passenger mile as an average automobile. So 
Charles Lave's argument back in 1979 was, if you want to save energy, it makes more sense to encourage people to drive energy-efficient cars than it does to spend money on transit. If you, the same thing is true today. If you want to reduce CO2 emissions, get people to drive more fuel-efficient cars. It makes a lot more sense than trying to get them to ride transit. Now, there's another aspect to uh, 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 transportation reauthorization, and that's that uh, the smart growth crowd wants to build land use controls into transportation plans. About a third of the transportation plans I reviewed specifically had urban growth boundaries and other coercive land use regimes to try to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And yet, guess what? It turns out that high-rise, low-rise, and mid-rise housing, because they use so much concrete and steel, actually emit more CO2 both in construction and in operations than a typical single-family house or, or townhouses or row houses. The McKinsey Company recently just put out the, the uh, report saying that the United States can reduce its CO2 emissions over the next 30 years to be less than they are today by doing things that cost less than $50 per ton of CO2 abatement, of greenhouse gas abatements. $50 a ton, therefore, is the, uh, the marker against which we have to judge policies to see whether they make sense in trying to reduce CO2. So I estimated, based on the data we have, how much we can reduce CO2 using light rail, using making other transit improvements, and doing other things. The most efficient light rail operation in the country, and this does not count... This does not count the cost of construction, which would make the cost even higher. But the most efficient light rail operation in the country costs almost $5,000 per ton of CO2 abatement. Uh, other transit improvements, cost a thousand, some of them cost $1,000 or more. The most cost-effective things you can do if you're a transportation planner is traffic signal coordination. That's $11 per ton of CO2 abatement. And you also save people time, you save fuel, you save a lot of other things. So it, when you count the fuel savings, it probably pays for itself. And finally, uh, McKinsey said if you just make cars more fuel efficient, making them lighter, uh, use more lighter weight materials, that will actually save people money so it'll have a negative cost per ton of CO2 abatement. So Charles Lave was right in 1979. If we want to have more efficient transportation, if we want to have more environmentally friendly transportation, make the transportation pe that people use more environmentally friendly. Don't try to change people's behavior. So my recommendations for the next reauthorization are to focus on performance, not prescriptions. For example, transit money should be given out to cities based on how many people they ride transit, or more accurately, how much fare, transit fare revenue they collect, because transit numbers can be fudged, fares can't. Uh, highway funds should be based on other performance measures like congestion relief, and uh, for other reasons that are described in my report, I also think Congress should repeal all the long-range planning requirements in the law. So... Uh, <clears throat> Thank you, Randall. Our next speaker is Sam Staley. He's the director of Urban and Land Use Policy at Reason Foundation, a nonprofit think tank advancing free minds and free markets. Their mission is somewhat similar to ours. 
Sam is co-author with Reasons Ted Balaker of a book called The Road More Traveled, Why, Why the Congestion Crisis Matters More Than You Think and What We Can Do About It. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Mary Peters says Balaker and Staley clearly debunked the myth that there is nothing we can do about congestion. And if Mary Peters says that, you can take it to the bank. <laughs> Staley's previous book, Smarter Growth, Market-Based Strategies for Land Use Planning in the 21st Century, was called, quote, most thorough en- the most thorough engaging challenge to regional land use plans by Planning Magazine. Boy, it- Anybody who sits around reading Planning Magazine, my hats are my hat is off to you. I thought I had a boring life, but um, Staley is the author of two other books: Drug Policy and the Decline of American Cities, and Planning Rules and Urban Economic Performance: The Case of Hong Kong. Staley's approach to urban development and policy blends more than 20 years of experience as an economic development consultant, academic researcher, urban policy analyst, and community leader. Governing and planning magazines have identified him as one of the nation's foremost critics of conventional smart growth and a leader in developing practical market-oriented alternatives. His professional articles have appeared in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Journal of American Planning Association, Capital University Law Review, Urban Land Planning Magazine, and many others. He's the co-editor with SUNY Purchase College economist Sanford Akita of a symposium on urban intervention published in the Review of Austrian Economics back in 2004. Sam received his B.A. in economics and public policy from Colby College and uh, in social and applied economics from Wright State University and a Ph.D. in public administration with a concentration in urban planning and public finance from Ohio State University. On a personal note, it's very rare to find somebody in academia who is very crisp and sound on the issues and who's interested in uh, applying that knowledge to the uh, issues of the day. Uh, applied economics is an, an, is an unfortunately thin field, and Sam does a tremendous job uh, making it a little bit more robust than it otherwise would be. I've been very impressed by his work for a number of years, and I'm very happy to have this opportunity to introduce to you Sam Staley. Thank you, Jerry. Um, and uh, ran- and uh, once again, I would uh, like to thank Randall for giving me this opportunity to be here. I need to figure out. Here we go. Let's see. There we go. Um, I always enjoy coming to the Cato Institute, um, not the least of which because my first job out of college, out of, fresh out of Colby, was actually working for Cato. So for, any, for me, a lot of times it's coming back home, even though it's been a couple of decades since that happened. But um, so in part. What I'll be talking about today, there is an actual legacy that goes back to some of the things that I learned um, just as a, when I was starting out in the work world, just trying to make sense of all sorts of different things. And um, it's been a long journey, and Kate has been an important part of that. I'm very happy at Reason Foundation, where I'm sort of working on these nuts and bolts issues again, um, and have been for quite a while. What I would like to talk about, I thought Randall did a great job of, of really, which, as he usually does, of really look, taking an environmental approach to, to all sorts of issues, whether it's land use or transportation. But as Jerry mentioned, I'm more of an economist. Um, in fact, I'm not really a transportation guy. I'm not really a planning guy. I'm a cities guy. For me, the issue is how do we create sustainable cities? How do we keep cities growing? Because that's where the most productive part of our economy is. And then where I come from this in transportation 
is how do we make sure the transportation system adds to that and doesn't take away from that. Um, Jerry talked about The Road More Traveled, which is the book that came out about a year and a half ago. Um, but also this fall, we have another book coming out called Mobility First. In a sense, what this second book does is really gets into the why behind The Road More Traveled. So The Road More Traveled is intended to be um, really trying to f- get the whole issue of congestion on the front table as part of the policy discussion. But as we were doing that, and of course all the stuff was sort of going through my mind, I was thinking, well, we need to do a little bit better job than that. We actually have to explain why transportation is so important. Now, I know that because when I teach urban economics, I spend well over a third of my coursework actually going through transportation and why it's so important, why it's the backbone of any urban economy, and why as a result, especially now, it's the backbone of any national economy, increasingly the global economy. So a lot of what I'll talk about over the next few minutes is really trying to pull these ideas together in a very practical way. Um, because actually, even with $4 gasoline, these issues are not going away. We're going to have lots of congestion. And in fact, if we look at um, the trends, something the Reason Foundation has done, um, where we actually commissioned some researchers to look at the long-range plans and look at what they were forecasting in terms of congestion relief over the long term, um, this is some of the data. I know you can't read it because it's very small, but here's the main thing. In 1982, there was one urbanized area, one urban region, that had congestion severe enough that they were wasting an entire work week in traffic congestion. 1982, that was Los Angeles. And it was significantly more. But it was the only one. Out of the 85 um, urban areas that the Texas Transportation Institute has been tracking consistently, there was only one. By 2003, there were 28 of those 85 were now facing severe congestion. So we decided to do is, okay, well, if that's what the trend was then, let's actually look at the long-range plans and then figure out what's it going to be in 2030. And what was surprising, to, well, not so, unfortunately, I wish I could say it was surprising. It wasn't so surprising. Most of those regions were not actually planning to reduce congestion. If anything, they were going to slow the rate of growth. So the result is that by 2030 of those 85, the Texas Transportation Institute tracked consistently, 55 were going to be faced with congestion that was as severe as Los Angeles was in 1982. But more importantly, by that time, this is the column all the way over to the right, 12 of those metro area, of those urbanized areas, were going to have congestion as severe as today's Los Angeles. 12 of them are going to have congestion as severe as today's Los Angeles. And some of them you expect, Los Angeles, Chicago, Atlanta, but then a few that you don't expect, maybe. Denver, Las Vegas, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Tacoma. All right, so this is what they're planning for. I mean, this is, uh, so that is actually pretty striking. And actually what this raised the bigger question, which is what motivated Mobility First, the book that will be coming out in, in the fall is, why aren't people getting this? I mean, it's not like we don't have a lot of intelligent people aren't involved. Actually, many of these people are a lot smarter than I am. And I think what's happened and what I've seen happen, both in terms of my teaching as well as looking at urban cities and their growth, is that we've sort of forgotten the role that mobility plays in promoting city growth and sustainable economies. And we've forgotten why congestion is a problem. In fact, of course, as Jerry mentioned, I, I interact an awful lot in the Professional Urban Planning commission, uh, Community. Um, actually, uh, probably if I just read all those journals, it would be pretty boring. But when you come at these issues from a market-oriented perspective, it gets pretty interesting very quickly um, as they respond to your various ideas and, and thoughts. Um, one thing, though, to keep in mind is that 
when you look at the pace of technological change and you look at the pace of economic growth and incomes, $4 gasoline right now may be changing some decisions in the short run, but it's not going to affect much over the long run. So this is we're seeing the headlines of articles in newspapers now. They're talking about how people are beginning – a few people are beginning to get, to get on trains and, and buses. But the bottom line is no matter where you look in the world, as Randall uh, pointed out before, the trend is toward more automobile travel. And that's because, frankly, we, we value the mobility that comes from that. And that sort of brings us to this. So what is it about congestion that's a problem? Pierre – Put yourself in the position of an employer. Let's say you actually now have to hire 15 people. Now, something you have to keep in mind is you're located someplace. Maybe it's downtown Washington or wherever. And now you have to ask yourself, how, how big is the pool of workers that you can tap into? You need 15 really high-caliber people. If your labor force is 15 minutes away and you can get all those people, great. Well, what if you can't get those 15 people in 15 minutes? Maybe you need to go further out. Maybe you need to get a larger labor pool, maybe 20 minutes out, 30 minutes out. There's an interesting concept in transportation planning called the law of constant travel time. And essentially what it says is that most people are going to be willing to commute about 30 minutes to wherever they're going to go. And they make, if they can't, they make an adjustment. Either they move closer to where they, their, uh, their destination will be. It's sort of we move our house or whatever. Or we do what I do. I telecommute. I move the job into my home. So I eliminated my commute very directly. Um, so I tell people I work in L.A., but I live in Ohio. Well, that's because I'm a telecommuter. Um, so we find ways to optimize those combinations of things we're doing. Now, keep that in mind because it's going to be really important. Because not only – but – if we just think in terms of the workplace, which is only one component, what happens then, congestion make, takes, it means it takes longer for us to get to work or, or for our workers to get in. So what ends up happening is the more congestion, the longer time, that law of constant travel time factors in. So your opportunity circle, in other words, that ring around which you can draw from the labor force, gets smaller. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, the interesting thing about this is that as that labor force gets smaller – um, we, we can sort of think about that in, on one dimension, but one question I get a lot is, well, if congestion is so terrible, why is Los Angeles growing so, so much? Or I get the same thing with Mexico City, that type of thing. Well, let's take a – I mean, it's a sort of an interesting question. If we take the Los Angeles area – ignore the title on this because I pilfered this from my colleague Bob Poole's uh, study on hot lanes and hot networks um, – Essentially, one of the problems we have to run into is that when you have a very congested metropolitan area, um, you're going to start with a labor force. By the way, if, in other words, everyone at Reason Foundation, Reason Foundation is located in the center of that circle. And that, by the way, is roughly a 30-minute circle in Los Angeles. So in other words, if, we were, if you had to reliably make sure that you could get into the office in 30 minutes, you're roughly in that circle. So if all 45 people at the Reason Foundation had to live in Los Angeles, they'd all have to live in that circle. All right. Now, the problem is there's your downtown, downtown LA. So we're way over on the western edge. When you have these opportunity circles, when you have congestion that's severe and it begins to constrain it, essentially what you have are economies that are operating independently of each other. So we're not tapping into anybody who, works in down, who lives in downtown to work out in our L.A. office. 
And for that matter, the people in downtown are not tapping in anyone or can't tap in anyone that's living out in Santa Monica or, or West L.A. So the problem then is you've got a limited labor force. You've got a limited – all sorts of things are limited. I mean think about living. That's essentially – if you're living in L.A., that, those circles represent basically where you can get to things when you're not working. It's not quite as um, as great as you might think. But imagine if you were able to dramatically expand that opportunity circle by allowing people – giving people more mobility by reducing congestion. Well, suddenly what you see, you can tap into a lot more resources, become a lot more productive. And in the book, we actually go into a lot of the research, which is showing that this is – that this is in fact important. It's not just a hypothetical or a theoretical idea. Um, so the question then becomes – how do we get to the point where we get that opportunity circle to be larger? Now, and there are a, a number of things we can do, and some of the things Randall already talked about. We can certainly manage the existing system more efficiently. That includes things like traffic signal optimization. One of the most promising methods is road pricing. I'm going to get back to that in a few minutes. Um, the other thing, though, we have to do is we're going to have to build more capacity because we, uh, when you've got a situation where your urban lane miles have been increasing at about one-third, or actually one-twentieth of your increase in travel demand, you've got a major mismatch between demand and supply. That's a major source of congestion. So you have to build more capacity. By the way, it's, I know that's an easy thing to say. It's a very different thing to actually put it into practice, and I'm going to get back to that. The other thing, though, that is far more important and is not on anybody's radar screen at this point, at least from what I can tell, is that our transportation network is not designed to accommodate modern transportation needs and desires. And mo much of Mobility First is exactly about this point. It's not about building capacity. It's building the right capacity in the right place at the right time. And that is a very different problem than what we faced in the 1950s when we were building out the interstate highway system. At that point, we were just simply trying to, to connect these major urban areas, and we knew we'd, we were pretty sure we'd get all these productivity benefits, and we did. But it's very easy to, it's a lot easier to do that when in, you have a world where, one, you're connecting major urban centers, and the other is the dominant travel pattern is the traditional commute, going from home to work and work to home. Well, the problem is, in the real world today, that is not what we face. And in fact, these are some of the data on trips. To and from work, the conventional commute is only 15% of the trips we make. The more important category is the underlying one, from my perspective, is the all other category, which is the most, the biggest one, which means that our trips are so varied, have so much complexity in them, we can't even come up with the category that gets a big chunk of them. So this is a very different world than the 1950s when our current system was developed. And it means we have to think very differently about design. In the past, uh, we most of our highway networks are built on what's a hub-and-spoke network. Uh, Atlanta is a great example of this. You have the downtown area, which would be the center of Atlanta, it's, and you've got these interstate highways that all come, converge toward the downtown, and you might actually have a beltway around that. But the problem even in Atlanta is that capacity is not kept pace with demand, which is vehicle miles traveled. Also in Atlanta, and this is an important, one of the more salient issues that we just, I sort of discovered as I was thinking about this, one of the reasons why congestion is so terrible in Atlanta has got a terrible arterial network. They've got good interstates, believe it or not, but the local roads are terrible. They're not very well connected at all. It's very hard to get from point A to point B on the local roads, and that's another reason why so many people funnel into the, uh, onto the highways, which makes congestion even worse. It, and it's a hub-and-spoke system, which 
simply doesn't recognize the complexity of modern travel. I mean, imagine if you're trying to get across the county and now everybody's funneled into downtown, at least you have a beltway that helps in some respects, but it's not nearly enough capacity in the Atlanta area in particular. So what we need to do is we need to think about a different type of design. And what we, the way we conceive of this is a spider web. Because what a spider web does is it creates a mesh of roads that allow you to connect to m- multiple different points and places at different times. And so you have fewer major trunk roads, but you build out the system to handle the volume and all that complexity. So essentially what you do is you end up with a design that looks more something closer to this. This, by the way, is a major reconstruction of the transportation system. And one of the things that um, – one of the reasons we've seen, as Randall mentioned before, transit has declined is because transit, particularly fixed-route transit systems, cannot handle this complexity. Um, cars do. They do a great job of doing it because we can choose when we leave, when we, where we're going to go. We can train – we can – what we call trip chain. We can put all sorts of different levels to that trip. Very easy to do in a car. It's a lot more difficult to do that if you're taking the bus or you're taking a train. When I – would go to a meeting, I can drop my kids off to school, I can work, leave that meeting whenever I want, go to the soccer game or now lacrosse game, seems to be more and more sports every year, um, it'll be volleyball and, all, and who knows what it'll be, but, but with an automobile, it's a lot easier for me to manage all of those moving parts, a lot harder to do that in transit. So a lot of the problem with transit is simply a practical shift in the way we, um, we our lives operate. Um, interestingly enough, Houston is a good case, is a, a sort of an example of a, a metro area that's beginning to get this right. Um, we actually saw a lot of these kinds of uh, new designs of transportation when we were looking at transportation systems in China, which we also talk about in Mobility First. But you can see in Houston, you have these ring roads, which are connecting a lot of points on the periphery, and you can actually see further out from the green, um, you can see that these, the, these thinner roads are still local roads, but they could easily be built out into expressways if they needed to be. But you also see the grid system of local roads, which can move a tremendous amount of traffic very quickly. Now, which raises the question, do we have a case where a city has, in fact, been able to build its way out of congestion? Well, Houston actually has some interesting things to tell us about that. Because while we haven't had a – by the way, we did – when we built out the interstate highway system – we essentially eliminated an awful lot of congestion. That's why Los Angeles was the only major urban area that didn't have severe congestion. We actually built our way out of it. We can't quite do it the same way. But even in Houston, what, one of the more interesting things we found in, re, in research the road more traveled is that if you looked at the lane miles, um, new freeway lane miles added, which is the solid line, and you look at the delay per peak hour traveler, which is the Um, dotted line, you find that as they added lane miles, delay went down. When they stopped adding lane miles, delay started going up. And this is not a unique case, in fact. And a matter of fact, even the Texas Transportation Institute recognizes that adding capacity is 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 really an essential part of managing congestion. Um, So where do we – the question then is can we build the new capacity – um, well, if it's an engineering question, without a doubt, we can. Um, State Route 91 in Southern California, those middle lanes are managed using what's called dynamic pricing. They actually change the price in order to, ma- to main sh- make sure that those lanes in the middle are free flow 24-7. And you can tell – actually, this is a real picture. This is 
fairly common. Roads are the free, quote-unquote, free roads are gridlocked. The roads that are dynamically priced and to free flow are constantly. And matter of fact, they rebate. If you don't get through at free flow, those middle lanes will actually rebate the toll to you. So it's a guarantee. So, yes, you, and we built those lanes were built through the use of tolling. That capacity existed there. Um, in Tampa, we've got the Crosstown Expressway, which is also um, tolled. We built, and so we've built capacity there. We also have the ability to build tunnels when we want to. Um, unfortunately, the most recent experience was a very poorly managed project in Boston called the Big Dig. Was, uh, and, uh, but in terms of its impact on congestion and traffic flows, it was an engineering success. We actually have before and after analysis which showed we can do that. These are political problems. These are not engineering problems. They're not even economic problems, as I'll talk about in just, a, in just another minute. But the other thing we need to do is we need to recognize that arterials are also incredibly important as part of the rebuilding of this design. Those of you in the – actually, if you uh, use Metro all the time, you may not recognize this. But if you drive, you might recognize this as Connecticut Avenue at DuPont Circle. Um, more and more cities are using what we term Q-jumpers or Q-duckers to divert through traffic away from intersections. This is actually something, if it were applied in Manhattan, would make a huge difference in terms of traffic flow and congestion in Manhattan. Um, but you work within the existing right-of-way. Um, they can be expensive, but they can also be um, paid for through tolls. There's actually an experiment in Florida which is going to build a, a jumper going over the intersection, and they're going to toll the people that use that. I think it's a quarter is what they're going to call. They're going to charge them, and it's a choice. So these Q jumpers are going to be an important part of it. Flyovers are also part of it. Working within the existing rights of way to add capacity. Then the question is, can we afford to buy to build this new capacity? Um, you know what? If we're going to rely on taxes, no, because we're never going to generate the taxes. It's politically, it's very difficult to do that. If, on the other hand, we're willing to let users pay for it. Yes, we are. We can build a lot of capacity. In fact, half of the capacity that's been built over the last 15 years has been by asking people, users, to pay for it through tolling. And in fact, the Reason Foundation has looked at a number of different projects, including major tunnels, as well as entire networks of what we call hot lanes, high-occupancy toll lanes, allow single drivers to use those, similar to what's being built around Washington, D.C. And you can see that just by using tolling, particularly dynamic tolling, which allows you to guarantee free flow, you can go, even in Southern California, you can get the full cost of some of this, these facilities paid for, and you can get significant portions of, the other, of other major facilities paid for by letting the users pay for it through tolls. In other words, the people that are going to benefit, let them actually Register that their voice through the pricing mechanism to let that happen. So what we need then is we need the sufficient physical capacity to handle travel demand. You can't get around that. You've got to uh, make sure that you, the supply is in some way um, measured against demand. So new capacity is essential. ITS is part of that, but we actually have to build a lot of capacity. We need web-like connections to different components of the road network. And then finally, Market pricing to manage the regional flows based on major corridors, um, demand, and choice, uh, supply. So what are the three things that we need to have I think are essential out of this process at the end of the day? We need public-private partnerships because we need the private capital to build these facilities and, and, to, and to redesign these new redesigned facilities. We need the road pricing to ensure that the people that are going to benefit from these facilities have the opportunity to tell us where those facilities need to go and what priority they should get 
Let the consumers will actually let us tell us that information through road pricing. And also we need to de- decentralize these transportation investment decisions as much as possible. Much of our transportation flow problems are really regional and they are no longer national. And to the extent that these decisions remain at the national level, we're going to get inefficient decisions about investment. So we've got to move it down to the state level. In many cases, I believe they ought to be moved down to the city level and to the, and to the regional level. So with that, thank you very much for your patience. Thank you, Sam. Our final speaker is Greg Cohen, who is the president of the American Highway Users Alliance. Mr. Cohen serves motorists and highway supporters as their advocate. So he is your advocate in Washington, so pay attention. He pursues federal policies that improve federal safety and reduce congestion. Members of the highway users include 270 diverse businesses and nonprofit associations that rely on safe and efficient roads to transport their families, employees, customers, and products. So on second thought, unless you are one of those 270 businesses, maybe he's not your advocate, but he hopes to be. Uh, Prior to joining the American Highway Users in July 2002, Greg served as a professional staff member of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee on the Highways and Transit Subcommittee, and he has lived to tell the tale. Uh, There, he was responsible for oversight of the implementation of the 1998 Highway Bill. As a licensed professional engineer, Greg's primary role on the committee uh, was to drink strychnine. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) It was to provide policy assistance in areas of highway planning, engineering, construction, for which politicians were eager to receive this information. Uh, Cohen worked on legislation to eliminate highway uh, funding costs, cuts to eliminate, excuse me, to eliminate highway funding cuts and streamline environmental reviews and coordinated oversight hearings that laid to the, laid the policy groundwork for the 2005 highway bill, colorfully named Safety T. Lou. There is no end to the wonderful anachronisms of Washington. Before joining the committee, he served as a highway engineer with the Maryland State Highway Administration, where he managed capital projects, planning studies for major highway and multimodal projects. Greg is a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering and Master of Engineering in Transportation, Energy, Engineering, and Planning from the University of Maryland at College Park. Greg is also a member of the National Society of Professional Engineers, the American Society of Civil Engineers, the Institute of Transportation Engineers, and is a fellow of the Eno Transportation Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Greg Cohen. I think I would have used a little bit of a shorter biography if I knew you'd be adding to it, Jerry. Uh, thank you to Cato. This is uh, a, a real, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak before this group, and it's great to follow uh, Randall and Sam, whose studies and books I have relied upon and really, really enjoy reading and learning from. Uh, I am not a researcher, uh, although I am an engineer, uh, so their research has been really, really important in the policy framework. I'm going to talk a little bit about polling that the highway users has done, some of the problems that we're facing with the 2009 transportation authorization bill, as well as some of the solutions that I have not yet vetted through my organization, but um, I think might be sort of interesting. So the solutions to this point are my thoughts alone. Randall told me how to do this. I will. Okay, I got it. 
see if that's right. All right. Well, first, a little bit of polling we've done um, in April. Uh, this was from uh, this is from a survey of uh, 1,000 likely voters, and we're using this information um, as uh, to to give to candidates for Congress about uh, so to provide them a little bit of information about the upcoming issues facing the 111th Congress on transportation and where uh, people think about the the major issues. Uh, since Randall asked me to speak about uh, congestion relief or gridlock as a potential solution in the next bill, uh, it's good to see that the public overwhelmingly feels that we need improvements there. 88% of people feel that we need major congestion relief. Also, it's important that we dedicate the fuel tax or user fee, I would say it's an indirect user fee, but it is a user fee, to highways and bridges. 93% feel that it is important that the user fee from gas, diesel, and truck taxes are dedicated to highway and bridge improvements. Interestingly, about three-quarters, a little more than three-quarters of people, see that cars, roads, and bridges are a benefit to society. We asked them if they, uh, you know, created sort of a two people. John believes that cars, roads, and bridges are a benefit to society. We need a strong highway network to improve safety, relieve congestion, and keep the economy moving. Uh, Mike believes that cars, roads, and bridges have a negative impact on society uh, and that funding should be redirected to promote alternatives like bicycle walking and mass transit. And this is uh, what um, many people are taught today. Uh, And it appears that three-quarters of people feel the former we looked at green policies. Um, which of the following approaches to reducing greenhouse gas emissions is close to your own view? About 70% felt that getting people out of congested traffic jams is a better green policy than reducing the number of cars on the road. So this is going to be shared with every Democrat and Republican and independent um, candidate for Congress next year. Finally, And I think this is an issue that a lot of us have been thinking about. What is the federal government's role, or is there a federal government's role? Um, If you look at this survey, we asked about a couple different modes of transportation, and we felt who should take the lead. We asked who should take the lead, the federal, state, or or local governments, on different kinds of transportation. Seventy-two percent of people felt that federal aid or federal government involvement is important as a leadership role on major highways and bridges, whereas uh, on the other modes that we asked about, um, it was certainly a a large uh, uh, majority felt that the federal government should not be the lead agency in funding these things. Now let me talk a little bit about uh, the problems that we're facing in 2009. And in fact, um, Randall, the highway bill does expire in 2009, but the taxes that fund it continue through 2011. But because of a quirk in the uh, the way the budget works, the rules that Congress has, you have to extend the, the taxes out two years to keep the program running. So, in fact, if there's no extension to the highway bill, um, regardless of the fact that, that the taxes go out, the program will shut down in 2009 without legislative action. Okay. Highway funding has been stable and predictable, and in fact a target because of its stability for about 10 years. Um, it was a great achievement that, uh, that highway user fees collected on gas and, and diesel have been guaranteed to be spent um, 
since 1998, and that created some predictability in the program. It also made the highway program an attractive target. Federal leadership in these guarantees, these budgetary guarantees tied to the gas tax, are the reason that we've had stable and slightly growing um, highway funding. I mentioned that. And we, importantly, we had an increase in funding in absolute dollars, not necessarily in, in, uh, compared to inflation, but we've increased funding without a gas tax increase since 1993 because we've gotten more money in gas taxes um, year over year. But we're also spending considerably more than we're taking in, and that was done on purpose uh, so that we could spend down this unused balance in the highway trust fund. In other words, people had been spending money on their gas taxes. The government had not been spending all of that money. And in 2005, there was a policy decision to spend down all that reserve money. In the process, we've been spending considerably more than we're taking in, and our reserves will be completely spent by probably the middle of 2009. So a growing program is unsustainable with the current revenue stream. In fact, because we've been spending so much more than we've been taking in, in order to match the current revenue stream, we'd have to cut the program pretty significantly. So some might say, well, if we have to cut the federal program, then you know the states could make up the difference, or let's let's uh, decentralize and have states and local uh, pay for the program or pay for roads and bridges and transit. Well, state funding is under stress, as many of you know. Um, sometimes, even in most states, even more so than the federal government. Um, I guess I used the recession uh, word here, but. Uh, the economy is affecting states even more than the feds in many states because of the diversity of revenue that they use to fund their transportation system, some of which is under uh, is much more affected by economic elasticity than gas taxes are. The federal matching requirements has been important for the states to maintain their share of the funding, and um, with cuts in the federal program, certainly the states would not have to match at a high level and would not have to raise or not raise the money that they need for their transportation system. In fact, for the first time, some states are not making their match and turning their share of federal funds back to the federal government for redistribution to other states. So a perfect storm is brewing. For the first time since the Eisenhower Interstate Bill in 1956, the Highway Trust Fund will be empty by the summer of 2009 and that there's, there's widespread dissatisfaction, public dissatisfaction, with the current T program that uh, Randall mentioned started with ICE-T. The policy really has not changed since 1991. Our view is that if we're going to uh, deal with this dissatisfaction, we need major changes, and we should stop talking about reauthorization, stop talking about T, or what's the next T bill, and talk about some major changes and how, how we can make this program better. And again, since spending has been greater than revenue, severe cuts as much as 50% of federal funding are, are likely, um, and they would be uh, matched, that they're likely in order to match the spending with the, with the incoming revenue. Have you tried asking for a gas tax increase to fix this problem? Uh, I think it's fair to say that there's very low support uh, for such a increase. 
or at least there's very low political support for such an increase. And I think election years make it impossible, uh, election year politics make it impossible to do that this year. But the fiscal problems with not doing that multiply with each passing year as we fall further and further behind the investment needs that our country needs to make. Yet the public trust in congressional spending is very low. And uh, have you heard of the bridge to nowhere? Uh, um, That's just one example of wasteful spending. And at least that was for a bridge. I mean, there's dozens of more examples that I think uh, folks at Heritage Foundation would be happy to share with you about how you you can judge the highway program by the worst earmark that might be in it. And certainly those uh, people who are critics of the program would judge the program by the worst earmark in it. Another issue is that carbon politics um, are, of course, in play now, and that they could help um, funding for uh, transportation, but they're likely to hurt as fuel prices continue to rise, um, reducing uh, income into the trust fund and also um, creating pressure to do sort of the impossible, as Randall said, create policies that really attempt to convince people to get out of their cars. Um, These policies are ineffective, but certainly would be dangerous to the Highway Trust Fund uh, as as a tool for its growth. Let me talk a little bit about the needs. You know, you can't really talk about money and how and, and with the situation we're in without talking about the needs, uh, pavements today are 33% poor or mediocre. Bridges over a quarter are structurally deficient or functionally obsolete. 36% of our urban highways experience regular congestion. We're losing 43,400 people every year on the roads, a third of which could be prevented with safer roads and roadsides. I'm talking about basic engineering, low-cost improvements like guardrails, markings, um, signs that are more visible. 33% of those deaths could be prevented. And we have economic competition in a prospering world. China is investing 2.6% of their GDP, and we're investing 0.65% of our GDP on highways and bridges. Granted, their GDP is a lot smaller right now, but they're going in the right direction. And freight mobility and reliability, we're going to double our freight over the next 20 years, and the the efficiencies that we have gained through just-in-time delivery are seriously threatened by congestion, um, particularly by the lack of reliability in freight deliveries without dealing with that problem. Special interests have rated the highway bills for 25 years. I think that the big tent policies that... um, that Congress has adopted in order to pass these highway bills by 95% of Congress, trying to satisfy every group, every congressman, all of that has really hurt the program's credibility. And we're finally feeling it now, Um, but it's been a problem for a long time. As I mentioned, earmarkings got out of control. And I don't necessarily think that all earmarks are bad earmarks, but as I mentioned, the worst of them will be the ones that judge the program, and it has really gotten out of control. Donor-donee battles, in other words, what's my state getting? Am I getting as much as the next state? Um, That kind of, uh, you know, whether my state gets 100% of what I put in or 96% or 104%, those kind of battles indicate that we've fallen away from our consensus, national consensus on what this program is really about. In other words, 
1956 and through probably about 1970, we had a national consensus that this program was about building the interstate. And it wasn't necessarily about how much South Dakota got and how much New Jersey got, but about building the interstate system. We've lost that. And these donor-donee battles are indicative of that loss. Many non-highway groups and other special interests have received their share of highway user fees in support in, in, in return for their support of the highway bill. And in fact, their funding has grown faster than the traditional highway funding. Now that funding may be cut, certainly they don't want to lose their slice of the pie either. And costs are growing. Worldwide, we have a demand for highway materials that are raising prices here at home far beyond what we're naturally, our natural uh, increase in VMT and, and in uh, highway trust fund revenue. Petroleum and steel products especially are, are affected by these worldwide demands. And the flat gas tax, which uh, is still 18.4 cents, you know, this is not the reason our gas uh, prices have grown. We, it doesn't grow with the increased cost of the pump. But the flat, flat gas tax has lost at least half of its purchase, purchasing power since it was last raised in 1993. There was a Transportation Policy and Revenue Commission authorized by Congress to put together some long-term and mid-term uh, uh, recommendations. And unfortunately, while they did some good work, they were, I believe, unable to focus on the program's mission. Um, the media only focused on proposed tax increases. So there's lots of work to do with media, grassroots, and, and politicians to demand reform. Again, as I mentioned, we have a lack of consensus, and that's because there's no priorities in the federal program. We have pots of money, and you can pick and choose between your pots of money, but, but the federal government really does not um, have any kind of priorities for the use of federal funds. Without performance standards and a measurement of results, the public will remain skeptical of paying taxes, the existing taxes, let alone any kind of new taxes for the federal program. So politicians have got to start saying no for the first time uh, since uh, probably the 80s to new and old diversions and the groups that seek them. That's going to be a very, very difficult culture change for Congress. Here's some solutions. My view, this is what I think Congress needs to do in order to regain trust uh, in the Highway Trust Fund and in, with the public. A lot of people are talking about this, and this was one positive thing that the commission did do. They said we need a performance-based program that's driven by outcomes. In my view, the top three to five goals of national interest, those national reasons that do justify federal leadership in a federal program, are congestion relief and mobility, safety, interstate freight costs and reliability, and making sure that those national highway system routes, these are the major routes, have uh, strong bridge and pavement conditions um, and that we don't see a continuing bunch of disasters as our uh, interstate system and our national highway system reach 50 years, 60 years, 70 years old. These roads were not intended to uh, be built to survive that kind of uh, time without rebuilding them, making them, uh, adding more capacity and making them stronger. And in a nod to, uh, to Randall, 
I think that the way we do this is we have to measure outcomes, not creating more plans. I don't think planning, and uh, the, the head of Missouri State DOT spoke at, at an event I was at last week, and he said, you know, let, don't tell me what you're going to do. Don't tell me what you're planning to do. Tell me what you did. And I think Congress has to do that. I think they need to measure outcomes rather than ask states to mandate, you know, what's your plan for congestion relief? That's not working. It's what have you done? So we need to measure outcomes and not create more planning requirements. Those who are involved in planning and those who have been involved in streamlining processes know that the current set of planning and environmental requirements already delay projects by over 10 years in many cases. We don't need more plans. And we need to create incentive for these outcomes. We need to measure the benefits and costs and make sure the taxpayers' dollars are spent more wisely. Say beginning in 2011, and that's, that's you know, somewhat arbitrary, but say in 2011 we start reducing the formula funds, that's money that's distributed to states just um, on formula, and take that excess and create a bonus program that rewards good results. These are, of course, results of national concern. Incentivize funds or create incentive funds for demonstrated congestion relief at the worst bottlenecks and the worst freight bottlenecks, and do it on an award per dollar spent. In other words, if you can spend less money and save more hours of congestion, then you deserve to be rewarded uh, for that, and you're, you're serving a, um, the taxpayer as well. So in other words, I'm not picking a mode here. If you can do it for light rail, for less money, and reduce congestion in our national uh, transportation system with light rail, and you're using less taxpayer dollars, I say go for it, in part because I just think that um, it would be very difficult uh, for them to do that. But if you could do it, then great. How about also an incentive fund for drops in fatalities and, and injuries per dollar spent? You know, we don't have to spend a huge amount of money to save lives on our highway system. Like I said, um, and I was in an accident like this, uh, where my car f- was hit and, and knocked off the side of the road. It was the fact that it was a new road with good safety grading that was the reason that we weren't hurt in that accident. Um, that's an engineering solution that is not that difficult to come up with. Every state has the expertise to do that. Incentive funds for reduced freight delays. I mean, if you really want to focus on just the, even just the constitutional reason that the federal government is involved in highways at all, One way would be to incentivize funds. I know that's not a word. Incentivize is used all the time. Sorry. But to create incentive funds for reduced freight delays. This is absolutely essential to maintaining our economic place in the world. And to do it, again, on a cost per dollar spent. Also, best performing pavements and bridges per dollar spent. And, you know, all of this is data intensive, but this is where we need to go. We can't do it just on pretty pictures. We have to do it on data, um, or, or we're not going to make any progress in creating public support or, or public willingness to spend for a program that's certainly in the public's interest. Finally, uh, a thank you again to Cato, and uh, my view is that reform is the key to public support for a new highway bill. Um, you must reform first, and if we do a good job, I, I don't want to scare everyone, but perhaps it's worth paying more money for this program if it's a good program. It certainly has, um, at its best, the highway program delivers far more economic benefits than it costs, but at, it, as, at its worst, 
um, it's an embarrassment to the government. So we need to reform the program. We need to really look at the diversion in it, the pork and the wasteful spending. That cannot be supported with new revenue, and I don't think it should be supported with old revenue. And we have to really focus on data-driven incentives uh, to get the results that are needed to serve the public's need. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. I love it when I'm asked to be the moderator for policy forums because that means I can horn in and take control of Q&A at least at the beginning. So I'm going to start with a couple of questions for the panel, and then I'm going to turn it over to you reluctantly. There will be a microphone that will be uh, available, so when we get to the Q&A, raise your hand. I'll call on you, and a microphone will magically appear. Tell me who you identify yourself, and then ask your question to uh, whomever you wish. My question is to the general panel. One of the things that I haven't heard you discuss this afternoon that I have uh, heard bandied about a bit by Cliff Winston, who's an economist at the Brookings Institution, is about the extent to which the, uh, uh, the balance between who pays for federal road construction and maintenance programs doesn't match very well with who benefits by federal construction and road maintenance programs. Uh, if memory serves, uh, Cliff's argument is that uh, uh, passenger vehicles pay the overwhelming share of the taxes, yet the uh, overwhelming share of the construction requirements come from uh, heavy truck use, and that a perfectly efficient and fair tax would tax passenger vehicles far more lightly than is presently the case and would tax uh, 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 major trucks a lot heavier than is the case. And he also has a secondary and somewhat related uh, complaint, which is that pavement is so uh, inefficiently thin that it's almost uh, designed to be a self-perpetuating uh, construction program that uh, is, is wildly uh, more costly than it needs to be. And I haven't heard this brought up outside of uh, uh, Cliff's books uh, as a general matter, and I'm wondering what you all think of that argument, and if you think that there's merit to it, uh, what are the prospects for uh, having that uh, considered in the, uh, in the fight to come? I'll start with Sam, and we'll move this way. Um, I think Cl- uh, Cliff's got a, a very important point, because I think part of what we're struggling with now is that we have to rationalize the entire federal transportation funding system, and how do you do that? And um, And... Even even going to the gas tax, by the way, was a step in the right direction, but it wasn't going all the, all the way. And I think the key is going to be, though, really trying to hone in on what benefits people are willing to pay for. And so the, that's, again, why the road pricing is so important part of this. And beginning to align revenues with the actual cost of service provision. And so until we do that, you're not going to have a sustain what I, I think is a, in the long run a sustainable transportation funding or investment program. So I think um, Cliff is pretty much is right on many of the essentials and certainly on on the way those costs are allocated. Um, but I think the more intriguing question is really in what direction do you reform it? And there I think I'm maybe a little different. I think um, I'm not quite – well, I think – Allocating co- um, revenue or trying to extract revenues based on a cost of a str- a sort of a narrow engineering cost of provision makes more sense in many ways than what we have now. Um, I really think we need to move toward a more economic rationale for generating revenue, which is really based on what are the economic benefits I get from having these facilities in place when I want them. 
So um, if you're going to generate extra revenues from passenger cars because you're able to provide Class A um, facilities so people can get from point A to point B quickly, I'm not opposed to that um, because essentially those revenues are still going to be dedicated to providing the level of service for those facilities for those users. Um, so I think I would be a little bit more focused on, which I think we're getting, we now have the technology to do, of really beginning to calibrate our, our, the entire road and highway system to looking at a diversity of different levels of service and quality that can be um, pegged through all sorts of ways through road pricing, which 10 years ago we just couldn't even really think about doing practically, but we can do it now. Greg, I'm going to take a wild guess and uh, – and- postulate that you probably are not sympathetic to the argument that uh, uh, passenger vehicles are subsidizing heavy freight. Is that correct? Um, well, I think the last cost allocation study that was done on this, I'm not familiar with Cliff uh, Winston's study, it was done in the 90s, and it did show that uh, trucks should pay a little bit more. I think truckers are willing to do so. They do currently fund about one-third of the highway trust fund. Um, Here's the you know I I as highway users I represent two major trucking associations but I also represent AAA clubs those who have uh, I guess the AAA clubs with the most guts <laughs> that are willing to really take on this the um, the uh, issues of congestion and the freight in the federal program so I don't necessarily have a uh, a um, interest in saying well cars should pay more trucks should pay more. But I'll say this about what I know of the trucking folks. Um, they are certainly willing to pay for the roads that they use. I think the truckers are very frustrated that they pay up to about a third of the program and, you know, have 2.86 of their every diesel tax put out to transit, have a lot of the money sort of distributed uh, throughout the program on, on roads that are not heavy uh, uh, trucking corridors. Seventy-five percent of truck miles are on the interstates. So I think, um, again, my view is that reform and better policy could uh, uh, make sure that the truckers uh, pay more if they need to pay more and also benefit from what they're paying. But having said that, I think the truckers would be willing to pay more uh, for a better program, but they certainly wouldn't be willing to pay more for uh, just sort of throwing their money into a big pot of money and and, you know, using it however they want. What, what do you make of his uh, arguments about pavement? I mean, you're an engineer, and, of course, I'm not. I don't think Cliff is. Cliff is an economist. Uh, but is it, is it true that uh, roads are – I mean, the narrative that Cliff tells is that they're almost purposefully underbuilt to require a steady stream of, uh, of maintenance expenditures and jobs and that sort of thing the politicians like. Does that narrative ring true to you? And if it does, is there any way of remedying that uh, in, in any conceivable future in Washington? Uh, it, I, I would say it is true um, in some places more than others, and it really has a lot to do. The investment decisions are made at the state level, um, and a lot of the decisions are made in a political process, and some are made in a, uh, in a what I would say would be a better process, a more long-term life cycle process. But it is very hard in a political environment to get around. Uh, the, the current governor wants to... Uh, um, is willing – some go- governor might be willing to go for a thinner pavement at a lower cost than, say, a deeper pavement that would last longer. Uh, so there's a political problem to that. And I think that there, there is 
with a performance-based program an, an opportunity for the federal government not to mandate a certain payment thickness, but to mandate an outcome, a result of performance requirement over time that is rewarded um, that would help get around sort of the political problem. But it is a difficult it's a difficult problem uh, to fix because you are you're trading off. You know, maybe you can build more lanes of road um, at a lo lesser thickness and pass the problem on to the next generation, and that might be your motivation as a governor. Politicians uh, or, do that, yeah, certainly. Wow. So, so you got to figure out the right policy framework to set up so that you can minimize that as best you can. Randall, are cross subsidies a major problem, and if so, uh, how do we address them? I think there might be some inefficiencies involved in uh, truckers not paying quite their fair share and automobilists paying a little bit more than their fair share. But when I look at the transportation network and, the, and federal transportation funding in particular, I see so many bigger inefficiencies that that's not one that I want to put much time into. I think there's a huge inefficiency in all the, the land use manipulations that, that cities are making and basing on a supposed need to get people out of their automobile, and, and these manipulations are being promoted by the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Transportation, under ICE-T and the su subsequent T legislation. I see huge inefficiencies in that uh, we're taking transit systems that are fairly efficient, fairly relatively efficient, uh, bus systems, and then spending $10 billion a year turning those bus systems into rail systems that are extremely inefficient, and that's $10 billion a year that is coming out of the pockets of, of, of truckers and automobilists that ought to be spent on highways instead of on uh, rail transit. So until we take care of those kinds of inefficiencies, worrying about the allocation of funds between trucks and cars and allocations of costs, those are just minor things, and you know I would love to be able to deal with that rather than these other problems. But well, my my next question gets into some bigger issues. This is the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, so uh, uh, there's a uh, a general uh, force of gravity that uh, that compels us to ask more radical questions than might normally be asked in policy conversation in Washington. And the one the one more radical question I'd like to pose to the panel before we go to Q and A is why do we have a federal highway program at all anymore? It seems to me that taking a cue from Greg's presentation, he listed four things which were of national interest, congestion relief, safety, uh, interstate uh, freight costs, and national highway bridge and pavement conditions. Well, it seems to be three of these four, th if it's true that most of, the, uh, trans most of the use of the interstate system is largely for local traffic, it suggests to me that if these were state and local uh, 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 matters of concern, all of these benefits would be delivered upon the people who are being asked to pay the cost. I'm not sure where the need for a national program really fits in. If we had state or local programs, all the, all the same incentives exist to uh, spend money, would allow for more innovation uh, and uh, possibly uh, uh, better policy, but of course maybe not. Uh, I, so let me start with Randall and work this way, uh, work back uh, towards the panel. Randall, how do you feel about the, uh, the federal role in, uh, in, in transit as a general matter? Uh, and how does that uh, is are those issues at all alive in the current debate? Well, constitutionally, I don't see a federal role for uh, the kind of transportation spending that the federal government is doing. Instead, it's become pork barrel. Uh, it's no coincidence that the House Transportation Committee is the largest committee in Congress, the largest committee Congress has ever had, because everybody wants to be on that committee so that they can get their share of the pork for their state. Uh, on the other hand, 
as a question of strategy, how do you fix that problem? As long as it's pork barrel, they're not going to want to fix it. So uh, my goal is to streamline it, make the spending as effective as possible, and then hopefully Congress will come to its senses and say, well, if we don't, don't get to spend it on pork barrel because we have to spend it efficiently, then why should we spend it at all? Maybe then, maybe then they'll turn it over to the states. But they're not going to turn it over to the states as long as it's a big pork fest. Greg, I know that you and I debated this subject last week in Houston, so I think I know what you're going to say, but I'll give you an opportunity to say it here. I, I gather you're not very you, – your mind hasn't changed after our confrontation a week ago about federal responsibilities and highways. Uh, no, it hasn't, it hasn't changed, but I do agree with Randall that there is a lot in this program that it certainly is not, in my view, in the federal interest, um, and that uh, there are real problems with the current program. I think the difference between my view and, and some who have advocated for complete and total devolution of the program is that I think that there are core federal responsibilities that do deserve to be funded, and I do think it's going to be very, very difficult but important to try and to reform this program so it meets those needs, those being the four that I mentioned. Um, and, you know, we debated whether or not it was a good idea to build the interstate highway system across the country. And, you know, and, and my view, and I think that of, of the majority of people, and certainly the majority we polled, is that that was a good idea and that some consistency from state to state so you don't have um, different say, different highway safety standards from state to state or, um, you know, the freight can get through one state better than another state. I think there is an overwhelming national interest in this sort of core responsibility. I'm not a fan of big federal government for a lot of things, but I think national defense and national highways um, uh, or national highway policy are two sort of key areas that are legitimately uh, federal government. I, I, I'm, it's, I'm disappointed that the federal government has taken those responsibilities and gone so far beyond it to sort of fund, you know, the brick paving of some historic downtown. Well, it may be nice. It really isn't a core federal responsibility. So we've got to clean up the program and focus on what the federal government should be, should be doing. And I think we'll have a much better program. Sam, was the uh, federal highway uh, program under Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, uh, worth uh, – uh, worth embracing, and is it still worth embracing today? From a strictly economic perspective, um, I think you'd have to say that the interstate highway system was a success. I mean, it, it knitted the, this country together in a way that no other infrastructure project had done before, and I think the evidence is pretty clear when you look at the that a significant increase in productivity was a result of that. The question is, does, is there that same role for the federal government now? And I don't think there is. I think we need to complete, we need to really rethink the federal role in transportation. And frankly, it's probably worth going back to think about how the federal government was actually, not the federal government was constituted, but how the system of federalism was created in that there were specific roles for the federal government, for specific roles identified for the state government. And the question was, for the, when, at the time, way back when, in the 1780s, what are the things that are uniquely federal? What are the things that are uniquely state? And I think what we see and what's interesting from a policy perspective is how that has changed over the last 50 years in transportation. I don't think we need the federal government to be involved in maintaining the lion's share of the roads, even the interstate highways, because most of those interstate highways are, in fact, serving local purposes. 
However, in fact, we some of the data we talk about, and again, the book that's coming out this fall, is that in most of our metropolitan areas, 85% of the traffic is local traffic on interstate highways. So um, we're not really talking about having the same function we did back in the 1950s. However, I'm a, um, real quickly, there is a federal role, as reluctant as I would like to admit that there is one, and I'm just going to use two examples, um, really two major cities within an hour and a half of each other. If we were talking about a, a nation connected with states like Indiana, there's probably very little role for the federal government except, I mean, maybe up in the northern part where you've got a, you've got a highway, that, a heavily trafficked um, highway at the north. Um, because most of the traffic problems in Indiana are largely local and state-based. I mean, you look at Indianapolis, there's very little the federal government can do in Indianapolis. It's all really a local decision. And it should be, I believe, properly local investment and local decisions that are made. However, then take a look at what's going on in Cincinnati, Ohio, where they have um, a metropolitan area that bleeds into three different states. There you've got some significant problems. All of them relate to governance, not really finance. Who's going to be responsible for the bridge that connects Cincinnati, uh, the Ohio side, to the Covington, Kentucky side? What about the Indiana side, which also has a big chunk of the beltway that goes through it? Those are trickier problems, and I think that there is a, a natural role for the federal government to be thinking more in terms of, of how it helps coordinate um, on a performance-based process, how you coordinate transportation systems that are very uh, – and those decisions are very complicated. Again, it's more of a governance issue than it is really one of a, the ability to raise revenue. In the 1950s, I think one can legitimately have asked whether or not – um, you, we could have raised sufficient revenue to build out an interstate highway system of the magnitude we did without some sort of a national pooling of those revenues. Now I don't think we have that problem at all. I think we've got plenty of capability to finance our roads on the local level. Jerry, if I could make one more point. I think the reason why the interstate highway system was successful is because it was funded out of user fees. It was a user-pay system, and it was designed by engineers who knew that if they built a bridge to nowhere, nobody was going to drive across it, and so they wouldn't generate any user fees. So they designed it to, to provide roads that people would actually use and, pay for, and be self-paying. Uh, there are some people who say, well, we spent $400 billion on a, on a highway system. Now let's spend $400 billion on a high-speed rail system, for example. But that would be $400 billion that would come out of taxes. Uh, user fees would cover none of the capital costs. would only cover a fraction of the operating costs. And so it would be a huge liability, and it would be a huge pork fest because every congressman would insist on having a, a, a high-speed rail system to uh, podunk Kentucky or West Virginia or Oregon or wherever, no matter whether they needed a high-speed rail system or not. So uh, if the federal government can stick to first principles, a pay-as-you-go basis out of user fees, then it has a role. But if it decides to just go on a pork fest, it won't have a, a, a positive contribution to our economy and to our country. Of course, if memory serves those roads, the uh, the program was sold not as an opportunity to build roads that people would, would use, but roads that tanks and, uh, and, and various other military equipment would use to uh, head off any military threat to our coast. So uh, it's, it's interesting that Eisenhower and, and, and politicians embraced and, and argued for the program on an entirely different set of arguments that are now being used to uh, justify it. Anyway, I've overstayed my welcome with, that, with the mic. <laughs> so we're, we'll turn it over to you. Uh, if you have questions, raise your hands. I'll call on you, and the magic microphone will magically appear 
and then you use it to tell us who you are and who your question is for and what your question might be. I saw a hand down here first, so this is where I'll go. Uh, my name is Steve Hank. Interested in transportation. I have no portfolio here. Um, I'm just interested uh, in New York. It always seems to me that the bridges going into New York City are the absolute biggest traffic uh, problem that I've ever seen. But I've, I have limited experience. And I've always wondered uh, uh, what, whether any of you have any solutions. I mean, for example, what if all the bridges were privately owned and they could compete with each other based on prices? Uh, would, would, that, would that help? Uh, I, I assume that some bridges are used more than others, and uh, there, that might be a mechanism to even it out. Um, even if they didn't give them ownership, maybe they could rent the bridge to a private concern. Well, one interesting point is that traffic flowing at, say, 20 miles an hour, uh, a highway is capable of only uh, throughput, is capable of only carrying about half as much traffic at 20 miles an hour as it is at 50 or 60 miles an hour. So if you raise tolls, if you have toll bridges and they're congested and you raise the tolls so there's no more congestion, you're actually going to be able to get more throughput, which means you'll get more revenue. If those bridges were private and the private owners were competing, they would probably raise the tolls, uh, actually get more throughput, and it would be better for the, for the Manhattan, it would be better for New Yorkers, uh, and yes, you might have to pay more, but uh, you'd be able to get to work a lot quicker. It would be worthwhile. Uh, the problem is they're government, and so they have a political constituency designed to keep the tolls low, and then they also divert the money to things like the World Trade Center, which was built out of the tolls on those bridges. Yeah. Mm. It always seemed to me that the uh, tolls were excessive. I mean, given the amount of cars that passed, yeah. it certainly has got to be more money than it co uh, they raise than they need to maintain those bridges. I know they're magnificent bridges, and they're not that cheap probably to maintain. But Well, tolls should vary every 15 minutes. So there probably are excessive at midnight or maybe even at 2 in the afternoon, but they're not excessive at 8 in the morning or 6 in the afternoon. Well, I'm saying if it's the government, well, this is my last comment. Um, if it's the government, they're probably just thinking more about how do we raise the amount of money to maintain the toll. They're probably not thinking about how do we manage traffic. I'm just saying from their point of view, I would bet uh, they raise a lot more. I'm just guessing. I don't know. I'm just, I would think that they raise a lot more revenue uh, than it costs to maintain them. And your point about the World Trade Center sort of confirms that. Well, part of the problem is you're, you're actually assuming that the toll policy in New York is rational. Um, it is politically rational, but it's not economically rational. So, I mean, you, on the uh, west side, you will have toll bridges. On the east side, you do not. And, and some you do and some you don't. Clearly, and I think it would be pretty easy to model, in fact, if you had real-time dynamic pricing, you would dramatically be able to increase the flow across the points. But you, more importantly, if they, in fact, had more of a, uh, an approach where those tolls could be used and were, in fact, dedicated to running it like it were a real company, you would have probably not more bridges, but you'd have more tunnels that would be taking more traffic into Manhattan. 
And there are a number of different capacity improvements that could happen in Manhattan as well as New York more generally if, in fact, they operated on a customer basis where revenues were, in fact, tied to capacity improvements. Um, even in Manhattan, you could, you, we, you, know, you, could, you could develop these kinds of queue jumpers we talked, be- talked about before. They'd probably fully pay for themselves given the traffic densities. So I think the basic principle you're talking about is right. And it's just it's a political problem of trying to move that mindset about how we manage our transportation facilities. New York is one of the places that needs it the most, but it's also the most difficult to change. I, I agree with uh, the two previous speakers and, and with a couple caveats. Uh, just to reinforce what Randall was saying, um, we have a problem that the tolls are diverted, of course. So I would agree uh, that you could build more bridges and more tunnels, as Sam was talking about, um, but provided that you use the money raised in the tolls for those projects, that this is not just a opportunity for the New York City government to build the Second Avenue subway line or to do, um, you know, do whatever it wants to do. So uh, my feeling is that there is a contract created with the people of New York and New Jersey um, when they built those old roads and those old bridges, and that if you were to build new bridges, that you could provide substantially higher toll or a market-based toll, but you shouldn't take away the ability of poorer people to commute to New York by raising the tolls on the existing bridges. So, so I would like to see the existing bridges more efficient, but I think uh, basically what you should provide is an existing system for those who want to use it, and a new high-performance system that might have higher tolls for those who want to use that, so you have a choice, and that you're not taking away a opportunity for someone to get across the bridge by taking a $7 toll and making it a, a $25 toll to keep it free-flowing. So I think, I think that's sort of the difference. Gentleman here in front with the glasses. You hold it for me, please. In a study I made on I-80 over 25 years ago, where I was commuting nine miles with stop and go, the amount of traffic during the main part of the morning peak was only 40% of the last 10 minutes after the congestion down below Route 15 got out and the congestion behind Route 15 was free to flow. Forty percent. The whole problem is the fact that in the Eisenhower deal, they made a big mistake on the design of the merge. They stopped the lane line between merging lanes at the taper so that it became completely dysfunctional just as soon as one car stops. The simple solution that would increase the capacity of the highway about 60% without any cost, and within two months' time, all you got to do is demonstrate 
getting that lane line extended parallel to the outside lane. Yeah, great. So that the incoming traffic can get up to speed. The amount of energy of a 50-mile-per-hour car striking a stopped car is 100 times as much as striking a car that's five miles an hour slower. Not only that, you have 10 times as long to make up your mind to change your speed five miles an hour to merge in. Let's get the panel. I mean, I've noticed that myself. Anybody who's driven in Washington, D.C. knows how insanely these uh, these uh, merger lanes have been designed uh, and how lucky it is that uh, we that there aren't 20 fat fatalities a day uh, trying to navigate these roads. Greg, you're the engineer. Uh, what in the world informed these kind of construction decisions in the first place? And is there any real hope to uh, see them improved upon in this uh, reauthorization? Uh, well, I don't think it, it would be best to have uh, congressmen decide that particular standard. And, but I do think it is important that we have federal leadership for fixing problems just like that. You, basically, um, the I, I agree with you that our merges uh, could be designed better. And, in fact, many of the decisions that were made when they first constructed the interstate system – um, the types of ramps, the, the, the three-point curves versus the, the um, dynamic uh, center curves have been changed to make them more efficient. Um, and as Randall pointed out in his presentation on congestion, uh, that traffic light improvements on arterials could save a lot more um, per cost of dollar spent on congestion than light rail, for example. So I think your, your point has validity, but that there are that it is also important that these kinds of improvements be um, uh, basically standardized so that you don't have uh, people from Maryland completely confused. Absolutely. And, I, and, and I'm not necessarily saying I, I think that we can get a lot more efficiency out of our existing we have time for one more question, and uh, then we will break for lunch. The uh, gentleman here in the blue shirt in the front, we'll go to you. And here comes the microphone. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dave Ross from Stiefel Nicholas, uh, transportation analyst. You know, you talked a lot about what should be done out there, but, you know, I'm also concerned about what will likely be done. You know, will the politicians on the Hill ever really come around to what you're thinking. So I wanted to get the panel's thoughts on where, you know, the transportation committee's head is, where, you know, Congress's head is right now on what's actually going to happen in 2009 with the reauthorization bill and whether or not that would change depending on the election. I'd, I'd be happy to Go ahead. try for that. Um, I'm grateful for the question. Uh, I think that um, in, um, until there is much more public demand for a more efficient and better road system and safer road system, that we have those of us who actually do advocate for passage of, of a federal highway bill have a very difficult um, task ahead. Uh, I think that the bill could potentially be delayed 
uh, not for the reasons that Randall was saying about fundraising. I, I guess I'm a little less cynical at this point um, about that, but because simply there's not enough money to keep the program going. So I don't think someone like Chairman Oberstar, who's been waiting for 40 years to chair this committee, would would authorize a six-year program at reduced funding levels. Um, I also think that there still is a tremendous amount of uh, work to be done to actually drill home to Congress that there's something wrong with the program they have now, that it's not just about more money, that more money won't just fix it all, but that the public is um, very concerned about the direction the program has gone in the last couple decades. Uh, so uh, I think that the prospects uh, are, are – I think it's important that we get it done in 2009, but I think that a lot has to happen to make it happen. Um, and I'm nervous and worried that what will basically happen is we'll have to wait for, you know, more bridges to collapse or something before um, people start saying, oh, my God, you know, why aren't you doing anything? Randall, to follow up on that, there seems to be a huge disconnect between the polling data that Greg offered on the uh, uh, in his presentation and uh, and the direction that, uh, that uh, politicians want to take transportation policy. Is that explained by a conventional uh, a pol- uh, dynamic of concentrated benefits to some but diffuse costs to others, and that uh, is why we see such a huge gap between what public, the public wants to see in transportation policy compared to what they're getting, or is there some other dynamic in play? Well, I think I could answer your question positively and, and say that there is a conventional solution, a, a Baptist and bootleggers uh, issue here. Uh, the Baptists being the, the environmentalists who say, well, let's spend the money in a way that is environmentally sound, and the bootleggers being the, the rail transit companies, the companies that build it, that design it, that built, ma- manufacture the rail cars. Uh, the rail transit lobby is probably about four to five times more, has four to five times more money that they spend lobbying Congress than the entire highway lobby, not just Greg's group, but all the other highway groups in Washington, D.C. So... Uh, there is a, uh, something to it, but there's also something just to the rhetoric. The other side has done a much better job of, of crafting their message and making it sound like what they're doing makes sense. And so uh, we need to come up with a better way of crafting our message and saying, look, we, we want to spend money efficiently. And, if, and like Greg says, if that means spending it on light rail, fine. But if light rail is just a big... Uh, pork barrel project that you're building so that you can attract a few cre- members of the creative class to your city uh, because they'll only ride on light rail and they won't ride on buses, then, then we have to ask, you know, does it really make sense to, for taxpayers, you know, federal taxpayers to subsidize members of the creative class on $25 a, a ride uh, trips? Sam, any thoughts on public choice or political economy or <laughs> You know, it's interesting because I think, um, of course, we have a I – always I have a distinctly outside-the-beltway view of this because when things come into inside the beltway, it's it, just very strange things happen. It's kind of – I think we've got a period of the next several months where an awful lot can happen or not happen, and a lot of it's going to have to be on how the issue is framed. And what I'm most concerned about is that if uh, very easily beginning next year um, or actually before then – the whole transportation reauthorization has very little to do about transportation. It has everything to do about whatever the political issue of the month is. And really, we're not going to know how that's going to f- fall out until we see the dynamics of this unfold over the next six months or so. Um, so 
I think it's very difficult to predict at this point. Where we, we know where the individuals are. We know where Jim Oberstar is on issues right now. We saw some of that unfold after the commission's report last fall. But I think at this point it's a very fluid political environment. So um, I would be hazard to forecast where it's going to go, but it's important for everybody to be involved at this point because that's how these agendas are going to be formed. My fearless forecast is that Congress's head is where it always is and uh, – <laughs> And that uh, the future me the future will be darker before it gets lighter, but lighter it surely shall be. But that's just me. Anyway, thanks a lot for attending the program today, and please join us for join us for lunch upstairs. And thank our speakers.